Welcome to the House of Lords podcast. In this episode, we speak to two members of the Lords who are campaigning for change, Baroness Newlove and Lord Alton of Liverpool. And we hear from them about mobilising support for changes to the Domestic Abuse Bill and the Trade Bill, as well as how they use their membership of the Lords to campaign on behalf of victims of crime here in the UK and to fight human rights abuses worldwide. Hello and welcome to the March episode. It's been quite a busy month here in the House of Lords with changes to bills currently going through the House as well as some staffing changes. Yeah, that's right. Um, Simon Burton was announced as the new Clerk of Parliaments uh, and that, that was announced just before the last episode came out. So what does the Clerk of the Parliaments do? Well, the Clerk of the Parliaments is the most senior official in the House of Lords administration. It's, uh, it's who we both work for, effectively. The post holder is responsible for the management, administration and the finances of the Lords and is also responsible in the Chamber during business effectively the Chief Procedure Officer to the House of Lords. The Lord Speaker, Lord Fowler, announced that he'll be stepping down in late April, which started the process to elect a new Lord Speaker. The election's currently underway, with three candidates having thrown their hat into the ring. Those are Lord Alderdice, Baroness Hayter of Kentish Town and Lord McFall of Alclueth. Matt, maybe you could explain a little bit more about the role of the Lord Speaker. The Lord Speaker oversees proceedings in the Chamber of the House uh, from the Woolsack, as well as playing a key role in overseeing the work of the administration as Chair of the Lord's Commission. Um, We did speak to Lord Fowler in the first episode of the podcast, so you can hear more about the role there. Listeners might be interested in um, a bit more, hearing a bit more about who the three candidates are. There are some videos and supporting statements on the website which are worth having a look at. But in a nutshell, we've got Lord Orderdice, as you say. He's a Lib Dem peer who's been in the House since 1996. He was once the presiding officer, so the speaker for the Northern Ireland Assembly, and would become, I think, the first speaker in either house to come from Northern Ireland. He's a retired psychiatrist. Then we have Baroness Hayter, who's been in the Lords since 2010, following her appointment to, as a Labour peer. She's held various opposition front bench roles, uh, following a career in the charity sector, amongst other things. Finally, there's Lord McFall. He's the current senior deputy speaker. So he chairs various Lords committees and is involved in uh, the running of the house. Uh, so it's Lord Matt Fall who answers questions on behalf of the Lords Commission when there are questions asked in the chamber or when peers put down written questions. From 1987 to 2010, Lord Matt Fall was an MP. He was quite well known at the time and chaired the Treasury Committee. As I say, uh, each candidate has put out a 500 word statement and there's a three minute video from each of those on the Parliament website. Following voting next month, the new Lord Speaker will take up office uh, in May and one of the first things they have to do is um, be involved in state opening a parliament. In terms of changes in the chamber, we're going to be touching on two bills today that have been passing through the Lords as we find out what drives two members to campaign for change. First up, we're going to speak to Lord Alton of Liverpool to find out a bit more about the changes he proposed to the trade bill and what inspired him to take on a lifetime of campaigning against human right abuses around the world. Lord Alton, David Alton, joined the House of Lords in 1997, having previously been an MP. Uh, He campaigns against human rights abuses around the world and recently proposed changes to the trade bill that would restrict trade with countries accused of genocide. We spoke to Lord Alton just before the Lord's changes to the trade bill were due for consideration in the House of Commons. So here's what you had to say. Good morning, it's David Alton, Lord Alton of Liverpool. I'm an independent crossbench peer. Lord Alton, welcome to the podcast. 
Thank you. David, maybe we could start by asking you about your human rights work, um, which sees you raising the plight of people across the world from Myanmar to Tigray, Hong Kong to North Korea. What brought about your focus on human rights around the world? What, what got you started on that? Well, I think some of it's in my DNA, Matt. I, I didn't have a political upbringing. I'm the typical kid off the council estate. My, my dad had been a desert rat and had served in North Africa in the Italian campaign. And his father had been in the trenches and then with Allenby in the Middle East. And when he was dying, he gave me his photographs and mementos, which included memorabilia of the Armenians who'd been executed in Jerusalem by the Ottoman Turks. My, my mother was a native Irish speaker and brought up her own perspectives about injustices and especially about the subjugation of minorities in the conversations we'd have around the table. And then, then at grammar school, I got involved in campaigns about the war in, in Biafra, protested against the war in Vietnam and organized petitions after Soviet tanks trundled into Prague during Dubček's Czech Spring. And I joined a political youth group and then went to college in Liverpool, the center of the universe many would regard it as certainly the whole world in one city. And where in the student union, I made my, my first public speech, which was on the subject of apartheid in South Africa. And then in my final year as a student, I was elected at 21 to the Liverpool City Council to the Low Hill Ward, where in 1896 at Hengler's Circus, two years before his death, William E. Gladstone, a son of Liverpool and Prime Minister four times, at the age of 86, gave his final speech. The Liverpool Daily Post said that the whole city had come out to hear him. At his home in North Wales, he'd met two Armenians who had described to him what he called the sickening horrors of the massacres and killings that were already underway. And he said in that speech that the powers of language hardly suffice to describe what had been done. And he said it would be an exaggeration if we were ever so much disposed to say that we had the power of language to describe the enormities. He said, we're not dealing with a common and ordinary question of abuse of government, but dealing with something that goes far deeper, four awful words, plunder, murder, rape and torture. The failure to act on his warnings of far worse to come would lead less than 20 years later to the Armenian genocide, one of the first genocides of the 20th century, as over a million men, women and children were killed as the Ottoman Turks sought to erase uh, entirely the Armenian identity from eastern Turkey. The belief that no one really cares is what always encourages the tyrant, and it leads to a, a culture of impunity. Hitler believed he could invade Poland and do so with impunity, and said, who, after all, speaks today of the annihilation of the Armenians? And that same rationale, a culture of impunity, led to the industrialized murders of the concentration camps. It's what led to genocides in Bosnia, Rwanda and Darfur, both of which I visited, or against the Yazidis in northern Iraq, where I was a few months ago, the Rohingya, and now the Uyghurs. So they're all the things that are in my DNA and why I care so passionately about human rights and believe that anyone who has the privilege of serving in our parliament, as I've done for the more than 40 years, uh, has a duty, not just a privilege, but a duty to use that platform to speak for others for whom no one else will speak. Clearly, thank you for that. Um, clearly, you speak with such passion on the subject. And obviously, um, you know, you, you feel your role varies, as you say, for speaking up to people. We, we certainly in the Lord's uh, administration get a lot of responses uh, to these topics online when um, the subjects are debated in the Lords. How do you think the Lords sort of compares with other parliaments in considering them? Do you, th do you think the Lords has a particular special role? I think one of the extraordinary things about the House of 
law, it is the expertise that it brings to the table. You can rub shoulders on the same day with former members of the Supreme Court, former clerks to the House of Commons, former ambassadors in far-flung places, and people who have run great departments of state, as, as well as former secretaries of state and, and members of the other place, the House of Commons. You have a, an opportunity to draw down on people's expertise, and people aren't there usually for ambitious reasons. They've done all that. They've left it behind them. You're more likely, therefore, to be able to get them to embrace causes. And I think you become less interested in left and right and more interested, as it were, in right and wrong. So it, it isn't unusual to sit down with someone who starts talking to you about someone like Raphael Lemkin, the extraordinary Polish Jewish lawyer who saw 49 of his relatives murdered in the Holocaust and who'd studied the Armenian and Assyrian genocides. He coined the word genocide and was father of the 1948 Convention on the Crime of Genocide. And then you start talking to someone like David Hope, Lord Hope of Craighead, who then gives you a, a brilliant analysis of all the things that should have been done to build on that convention and why the law simply doesn't match the ambitions from 1948. So we then, who have that chance to change things, owe it to the memory of men like Lemkin, but also the victims of these terrible atrocity crimes, to do far more to predict, prevent, protect and punish all requirements laid upon countries like our own, which is a signatory to the Genocide Convention, and to do far more than repeat the words never again uh, when we, we don't show the political will to make a reality of that mantra. So I, I think the House of Lords is an extraordinary place. And yes, it does do far more to delve much more deeply into these questions than, frankly, an elected House can do. I served 18 years in the House of Commons. It's a wonderful place. It is the democratically elected House of Parliament and ultimately always should and will get its way on issues. But it also needs a second opinion sometimes. It needs to be chivied and it needs to have things laid before it to give further reflection to. And for instance, the trade bill is a very good example of that because uh, it didn't consider the issue of trading with genocidal states when that issue, when the bill was before the House of Commons. Uh, and it's taken the House of Lords to get it to think about that seriously. Do you have many conversations with other parliamentarians in other, other countries about human rights issues? Is that, is that sort of part of the sort of Lord Alton's week? Um, it can be, um, and, for, and not just parliamentarians. I mean, this week, for instance, I chair the all-party parliamentary group on North Korea with my colleague Fiona Bruce in the House of Commons, and we spoke at length over, for over an hour with the special rapporteur at the United Nations, Thomas Quintana, about the situation in, in North Korea, uh, building on the 2014 report that was laid before the United Nations, which said it was a state without parallel concerning the atrocities and the criminality, the crimes against humanity that it identified in that report. And being able to speak to the man who is now charged with the responsibility to take forward that report is incredibly important. Or two weeks ago, I jointly chaired a session of the all-party parliamentary group on Pakistan minorities. And we had on that call uh, not only victims of, of terrible atrocities, including the mothers of girls who had been abducted, forcibly married at the age of 12, forcibly converted. We also had on the call the senior police figure in Pakistan who has been charged with the duty to try and sort this out. And so you can not just make a noise about things, you can engage with people and to try and take things forward. I'm very fortunate at the moment to be serving on our House of Lords Select Committee on International Relations and Defence and 
took part in the big inquiry we did a few months ago into sub-Saharan Africa, then the one on Afghanistan, and currently the one on China. You, you are given the opportunity to talk to people in this country, but overseas as well, about their experiences and to draw down on that. And then sometimes to make your own alliances. And yes, I, I have friends in other parliaments. And in an age when we've become more xenophobic and detached from international relationships, I think it's really important to keep those friendships going and do it through networks. I mean, isn't it wonderful that we're part of the Commonwealth? Isn't it great that we're part of Five Eyes? Uh, we're part of NATO. We have so many opportunities to build relationships. And I, I freely admit, but I, I'm saddened when we break relationships of that kind. Turning to sort of how you build support for issues in the Lords, you mentioned rubbing shoulders with different experts and you mentioned the APPG and the select committee work you do. How, how do you go about bringing people on board for issues that you want people to support you on? All party parliamentary groups are often called a sort of parallel parliament, an alternative parliament. Um, they are, of course, an important part of the mixture in, in parliament because they are bicameral. They bring people together across both houses and, of course, across different political traditions. And I found them a very good place in which to really kick off issues, but also outside of Parliament to create coalitions. Uh, I helped create the Coalition for Genocide Response, and that sponsored a webinar just this week on what is happening currently in Tigray. But I was then able to bring to that webinar Baroness Chorka, Linda Chorka, who herself has huge knowledge about Africa and is a former overseas and development minister. And I also brought Lord Botang, Paul Botang, who was born in Africa, was our high commissioner in South Africa and was a senior minister in both the Home Office and Foreign Office. So these were experienced voices able to speak into the crack and that creates a coalition. And next week, though some of those people will come together with others to reform an all party parliamentary group on Eritrea so that we, we have more credibility when we take our arguments to government ministers. It's more difficult for them to ignore an all-party parliamentary group or people who have given a lot of their own time, unpaid as it were, to, to do this. It's not part of the day job. And to develop an interest, a, a deeper interest in either a subject or a country. So I think that's one good way of doing it. I'm a former chief whip, of course, and in my time in, in the Commons, had responsibility for not just uh, colleagues, but also bringing together two political parties, the Liberal Party and the Social Democratic Party in, in, in the alliance. And I'm a big believer in alliances. I think you create far more together. And it's wonderful to make friendships as well uh, and to draw down on previous friendships. During the consideration of my recent genocide amendment, it was a delight to be able to work with conservatives like Michael Forsyth, Patrick Cormack, uh, David Blencafra, Lord Polak, and Labour peers like Ray Collins, Helena Kennedy, Baroness Kennedy of the Shores, Andrew Adonis, and Lib Dems like Julie Smith, Jeremy Purvis, and Lin Lindsay Northover, as well as amazing crossbenchers like my colleague Lord Hope of Craighead, David Hope, and Baroness D'Souza, a former Lord Speaker, and my very good friend Baroness Cox, Caroline Cox, with whom I've travelled to various parts of the world. And so you create friendships, you create alliances, and in doing that, you can create momentum around a particular issue. Um, and it, it, when you've stood together uh, once, you're inc more inclined to do it a second time. You build up trust in one another. And I think when you all come to believe that the cause is more important than the individual, that's when you can start making some real progress. You mentioned that you were, of course, an MP 
for many years and I think it's helpful for our listeners to sort of get a sense of the contrast when you're sort of trying to build coalitions in the Lords would you would you say that's easier than it was when you were an MP? Yes I would say it's easier to build coalitions in the Lords than in the Commons for one obvious reason because we're less partisan we've we don't have such heavy whipping systems people are more willing to say that they'll stand up on a principle rather than what W.S. Gilbert said about uh, always voting that their parties call and never ever thinking for themselves at all. There is a lot less of that, thank goodness, uh, in the Lords where people will vote on the merits of the arguments. But again, if you take the genocide uh, amendment as an example, that hasn't stopped people in the Commons from voting for that amendment from the government benches, but it's much, much harder to get them to do so. And I've been extraordinarily well supported by the former leader of the Conservative Party, Sir Ian Duncan-Smith, who has embraced that amendment and encouraged colleagues to vote for it. And given that the government has a majority of over 80 in the House of Commons and expects just on the party principle to win on everything, they came within 11 votes of losing in the House of Commons on this issue. So it is harder, but not impossible, to create relationships. The House of Lords should never seek to become another House of Commons. And having had the privilege of serving both, I believe our second chamber should should never seek to usurp the powers of the elected House. Uh, It's there to scrutinise, to chivy, to take a second look, and sometimes to initiate a a deeper and longer-term analysis than is ever possible when you're wrestling with the day-to-day and immediate concerns of your constituents. I I guess one of the most important pieces of legislation in the last parliament was the Modern Day Slavery Act, uh, initiated by Theresa May. That was bipartisan and bicameral, and significantly was improved in the Lords. I serve as a trustee of Arise, an anti-trafficking charity, and we've seen the difference the legislation has made. But we're also grateful that peers continue to point out that supply chain transparency still needs to be dealt with, not least as we buy products made by slave labor in Xinjiang, an issue that I raised during the course of the telecommunications bill. Uh, In the 19th century, Richard Cobden, the great free trader, opposed both the slave trade and the opium trade. He knew that there were limitations on who you should trade with. And as the Lords now considers the integrated review and the prominence being given to trade with countries like China, we should bear that in mind. Uh, I think the House of Lords does have that role of getting people to think more deeply and more broadly about issues. What do you think the UK is doing well for human rights globally? Amy, I think we do a lot of things well. Uh, We say we're global Britain. I think we have to do rather more to actually live up to that slogan. But think about the BBC World Service. It's a badge of honour for me that it's just been banned by the Chinese Communist Party for broadcasting the unheard accounts of Uyghur women, some of whom had been publicly raped, had done terrible things have been done to them uh, in Xinjiang. Uh, it's listened to by millions in countries like Burma, who are now demonstrating on the streets where a military coup has taken place. Mikhail Gorbachev once said he listened to the BBC World Service because it was the one place where he could hear the truth. Or think of the British Council, think of the Commonwealth, think of the role of Five Eyes, uh, especially in terms of what the Five Eyes countries are doing about the removal of democratic rights in Hong Kong. I'm vice chair of the all-party parliamentary group on Hong Kong, and I monitored the elections there in 2019. It breaks my heart to see people like uh, Joshua Wong, who, for whom I chaired a meeting in Parliament, uh, now in prison 
for being part of the pro-democracy movement. Nathan Law, the youngest member of the Belechkos, had to come into exile in the United Kingdom because he will otherwise be put in prison. In fact, all the leaders of the pro-democracy movement in Hong Kong are now in prison or under arrest or in exile. And I think I'm proud of the fact that our Secretary of State, our Foreign Secretary, Dominic Raab, spoke up at the Human Rights Council, where paradoxically, China is now a member of the Human Rights Council, United Nations. And Dominic Raab said that what is happening in Xinjiang is on an industrial scale. What is happening in Hong Kong is deplorable and reminded China of its obligations under international law. We've also done well on things like Article 18 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. It's the article which insists on the right to believe, not to believe or to change your belief. It led to Jeremy Hunt initiating the review by the Bishop of Truro into violations uh, of Article 18 worldwide, and which found that uh, 200 million Christians worldwide uh, have their human rights violated because of their beliefs. But similarly, Uyghurs, Rohingya Muslims have their rights violated because of their beliefs, or think of the Yazidis in Iraq and, and many others. We do well speaking out on those things. We do well on Article 19, which is the right of of the flow of information. And we speak up for people in the media and journalists. And we're right to promote a greater awareness of the plight of women and girls. And I've been meeting recently with the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, uh, with Lord Armand of Wimbledon, who does a terrific job on these issues. And I've given him some of the evidence we've been taking in the inquiry I've been chairing into the forced abduction, forced marriage, and forced conversion of Pakistan girls. This country, Pakistan is a member of the Commonwealth. It's also now a member of the United Nations Human Rights Council, and it's the biggest bilateral recipient of British aid. We must use that for leverage. We must use it for change. And I think we, we increasingly see the need to, to be effective in the ways that we do that. I'm sad that our overall commitment to Overseas aid, 0.7%, which was the target we were given in 1970, as long ago as that, in I think it was Resolution 2626, to find 0% of our, uh, our GNI as a contribution to development aid. I'm, I think it's tragic that we've had to reduce that to 0.5%. I hope that we will restore it very, very rapidly, because that helps to make a huge difference in the world right across the spectrum from the point of view of human rights and humanitarian needs. And uh, I'm, I'm proud of our country when it does good things like that. It can make a difference. And we, you know, we shouldn't be obsessed about pulling down statues. We should be far more obsessed about doing the right thing in the world. Uh, you mentioned earlier the Genocide Amendment, which was your change that you proposed to the new law and trade agreements that would uh, restrict trade with countries accused of genocide. What influence do you think our trade deals can have on human rights? The integrated review has just been published and it places great prominence on the role of trade in our relationships uh, with other countries. And that is nothing new. Uh, it's always been the case. In it, but in the 19th century, Richard Cobden, the great free trader, opposed both the slave trade and the opium trade. He knew that there were limitations on who you should trade with. And as the Lords now considers the integrated review and the prominence being given to trade with countries like China, we should bear that in mind. And the House of Commons is about to come to vote again on the amendment that has been passed by the Lords, supported overwhelmingly by majorities of over 100 and sent to the Commons, which says 
you should not be trading with a genocidal state. And as recently as this week, I put that question to the former Chancellor of the Exchequer, um, George Osborne, when he appeared before the House of Lords Select Committee looking at China, and he refused to draw a line. He simply said, I, I don't think we have enough evidence. I don't think we've seen enough. Yesterday, on the floor of the House of Lords, I pointed out that a week ago, a 25,000-page report was published by more than 50 international lawyers saying that what is happening in Xinjiang is a genocide. I pointed out that the Canadian Parliament, the Dutch Parliament, the U.S. administrations, both the outgoing one and the incoming one, have all said that what is happening in Xinjiang is a genocide. And yet our minister simply gets up on the floor, both in the Lords and the Commons, and says this is a matter for the court, knowing that this is a fiction because there is no competent court in the United Kingdom capable of saying that this is a genocide, and knowing that the International Criminal Court cannot consider whether there's a genocide unless it's told to do so by the Security Council. And the Security Council has on it, of course, both Russia and China, and China would use its veto to prevent that from happening. So, of course, what the amendment, uh, the all-party genocide amendment sent to the Commons seeks to do is to give a competent court in the United Kingdom the chance to uh, decide on whether this is a genocide. And the revised version of that says, well, if you won't accept that, then at least accept a judicial committee made up of former judges who sit in the House of Lords and give them the chance to evaluate whether there's a prima facie case to say that this uh, is a genocide which is underway. And of course, once you accept that there is a genocide underway, once you've predicted that this is what's happening, that lays upon you the duties in the Genocide Convention to both prevent, to protect, and then finally to punish those who were responsible, none of which we do at the moment. We're derelict in our duties, and we, we should be ashamed of that. So when we're talking about the trade bill, for instance, that's one that's been recently going back and forth between the Lords of the Commons for consideration of amendments, or ping pong, as it's also known. Um, when that's going on, is there a lot going on behind the scenes, or is everything actually happening on the floor of the two houses? There's a lot going on behind the scenes, Amy, and always that's where you're going to make movement if you're going to get any concessions. So on the trade bill, I've been working very closely with Alistair Carmichael from the Lib Dem, Stephen Kinnock from the Labour Party, Nuzgani from the Conservative Party, and principally with Ian Duncan Smith, the former leader of the Conservative Party. And they have been negotiating with the government at their end of the building. And obviously, have, they are in a position to press the government behind the scenes far more effectively than I am. But though I have had discussions uh, over the years with Lord Armand of Wimbledon about this in the Foreign Office, and more recently, uh, with Lord Wolfson in the Justice Department. So, and, and correspondents constantly sending letters saying, well, what about doing this or that? If you don't like what we've proposed, what about this solution? And that comes also from conversations with your own colleagues. So uh, they won't mind me saying, I'm sure that both Lord Hope of Craighead as a former Supreme Court judge and Lord Lisvane as a former clerk to the House of Commons have given me invaluable advice on what is achievable, what is possible, even if you have to make a compromise. And although I don't like the watering down of the original proposal, uh, nevertheless, so long as it takes us forward, then it can be justified purely on incremental grounds. The disappointment for me is often that the, the government just sticks to its position rather than saying, well, let's talk about this, recognise that there, there is a real desire in both houses of parliament for there to be a change. And instead of coming forward to you and saying, 
what if we were to do X, Y, and Z? They just slap something down, and then you have to then respond to that. So I, I think in a more mature democracy, we would have much more genuine negotiation than perhaps ping-pong allows. But we're within our rights constitutionally under the Salisbury Convention to send things back and to keep on asking. There comes a point, and that, certain, that point certainly has been reached with the Genocide Amendment, where you have to take whatever progress you've made and accept that, but be willing to come back again and say that, well, that's enough for this time round, but don't think that's the end of the argument. And in my experience, you, you just have to keep persevering and show that you're not going to go away. So ping pong is, a, is an odd phase in, in a parliamentary bill, but it is, it is often the best chance you have of making some small progress on an issue you care about. Are changes proposed in the Lords different because it can take a longer view? I think we are in a position where we can take a longer term view. You don't have to face an immediate election. You're not always looking over your shoulder. Um, but there is a place for that, too. I think it's very important to be accountable to your constituents. Uh, I was elected in an inner city neighbourhood in Liverpool. I became the shortest lived ever MP. My by-election was held the day after a vote of no confidence in the Callaghan government. So I was elected for two and a half days, made my maiden speech. I could have become an after-dinner joke for the rest of my life. Um, but uh, fortunately for me, the people of Liverpool re-elected me. And then I went on to serve in the Commons for, for uh, 18 years before I stood down in 1997. And then like a prisoner escaping the penitentiary, I was given a life sentence for bad behaviour by John Major uh, and had the extraordinary privilege of serving on, on the cross benches. And I have found again and again during the discussions I have with colleagues, but also on the floor of the House itself, that people are taking a much wider and longer term view and often drawing on their own extraordinary professional experiences and their previous political experiences. And that wisdom uh, shouldn't just be disregarded. And when people say, oh, it's an appointed House, yes, but the House of Commons is elected. And under the Salisbury Convention and under our constitutional arrangements, it will always ultimately get its way. I mean, one good example of, of how personally I was able on one specific issue to get the Commons to think again was on the issue of mesothelioma. This is something I was well aware of. Uh, it's an asbestos-related disease which takes the lives of thousands of people. My, it had affected constituents of mine who worked on the docks, who worked on building sites and had, had particularly in, in, in manual labour uh, work, had contracted that disease. And yet in the criminal justice bill that came to the Lords, the right to legal aid was being removed from people who had contracted mesothelioma so that they would be denied the opportunity to demonstrate that they had contracted this lethal disease as a consequence of exposure to asbestos in their working conditions. It hadn't even been discussed during its stages in the House of Commons. I challenged that. And immediately I found that colleagues like Lord Giddens, for instance, on the Labour benches, uh, Lord McNally on the Lib Dem benches, uh, Lord, Lord Freyberg on the cross benches, had all lost loved ones to this terrible disease. And ultimately, I found that the minister dealing with the issue had lost his father to mesothelioma as well. And so a common purpose was created between us. And it went on ping pong maybe three times backwards and forwards. And ultimately, the government withdrew the relevant clause. And the following year, thanks to Lord Freud, the minister who was involved, came forward with a full act of parliament to deal with mesothelioma. And we didn't just abandon it there. Myself and Lord Giddens and Lord uh, Willis got together with others 
and with the British Lung Foundation, were able to attract funding for mesothelioma research. And the donation that was made by a particular individual was matched by the Treasury, allowing uh, Imperial College to do extraordinary work to try and track down the causes of this disease. So that's an example, really, of how the Lords can make a difference, but it's not something to sort of go on and on on about. It's part of what we are given the opportunity to do, and it's an opportunity we should always use. You've had a career across Parliament spanning over 40 years. I was wondering if you have any favourable or perhaps most memorable moments from your time in the Lords. Amy, there are so many things that you could say that was a memorable experience or what an extraordinary person, wonderful people you had the opportunity to meet that you wouldn't have otherwise met perhaps. But perhaps there's one incident that still amazes me. It was a phone call that I received one day from the office of my colleague, Lady Cox. And a young researcher said, look, Lady Cox is is out of, of London at the moment. And she was supposed to be meeting a North Korean escapee who's coming in to Parliament today with an interpreter, would you be willing to see him instead? And I said to the researcher, but I don't know anything about North Korea. (laughs) And he said, "Uh, that's all right. No one does. You'll find it very interesting. And I I thought this was exactly the right response from uh, the research assistant. And I agreed. And this man came in to see me. And over tea, he told me about his wife and two children who died as he tried to escape and how he'd been going back into North Korea, helping others to escape. I didn't know really what to, what I could usefully say to him other than I would try to raise your case and tell your story. And so I tabled a motion for debate, thinking, well, I've now done my job. It will never come up. It came up number one in the ballot three weeks later. In desperation, I rang the House of Lords Library and asked what material we had about North Korea, including previous debates. And the librarian came back to me not long after and said there hadn't been any previous debates in recent years, David, about North Korea um, or in the Commons. But I'll get you the congressional debate and debates from other parliaments, but also some reading material. During the intervening three weeks, the North Koreans reactivated their nuclear reactor at Yanbyon. And what was to have been a debate, just a small debate about security and human rights issues in North Korea became quite a big one. And a lot of Uh, significant former colleagues from the Commons who had been secretaries of state or ministers participated. The BBC put it on today in Parliament. And I received a call from the North Korean ambassador uh, who had only recently taken up his post as their first ambassador to London complaining about what I'd said. I suggested he came in to see me. He said, yes, he would. And with Lady Cox, uh, we, we met him. And I said, Ambassador, you don't allow anybody into your country, so how would I know whether what I was told was true or not? Would you go? He said, and I wanted, but but would I come back? And Lady Cox nodded at me. uh, And I I said, well, I think we would go if we could pay our own way, if we could raise human rights cases, uh, and if it wasn't just a you know, propaganda exercise. I said, we now have an ambassador in in Pyongyang, and if you used us for propaganda purposes, we'd denounce it. So it wouldn't do any good from your point of view or your or ours. It actually led, in my case, to to four visits to North Korea. I wrote a little book about about it and the formation of the All Party North Korea Group, which I continue to chair uh, with my colleague Fiona Bruce from the Commons. And about four years ago, the then ambassador, new ambassador, came in to see me and to tell me, he was accompanied by an assistant, that the North Koreans were so angry with the K-1 
cases I've been raising and the issues I've been raising in the House that they no longer wish to have uh, any contact with me. And I said, I was, in fact, he said to me, so he said, to summarize, we hate you. And I said, well, Ambassador, I love you, but I hate your ideology. As we were going down the steps, I was showing him out. Uh, he turned around to see if his colleague was, uh, was listening and he shook me by the hand and said, no hard feelings. He'd said what he'd been told to come in and say. But the but the footnote to this story is the one that really is the one that uh, I like best. Just three weeks ago, as part of the current inquiry that the all-party group is doing into human rights violations in North Korea, we had a call with that man who had been the assistant. He was been the number two in the North Korean embassy, Mr. Tay. Mr. Tay subsequently defected in London, the highest ranking defector from any North Korean embassy in the world. Mr. Tay has been elected to the South Korean National Assembly. And in the call that we had with Mr. Tay, he said, I was so inspired by the things I heard and saw at Westminster. It was the thing that motivated me to take my family to walk out of that embassy and never to return. And now he said, I'm an elected member of the South Korean Assembly. And I thought, well, you may not change the entire world, but sometimes you can change your life here and there. And just because you can't change everything is not a reason for not doing anything. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that with us. That was really interesting to hear that. <laughs> Pleasure. Ian. David, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, it's been really, really interesting hearing uh, your insights and your clearly your passion for human rights issues globally. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure to be with you. After we spoke to Lord Alton, the Commons considered his amendment once more. In the Commons, the government repeated that it couldn't support the amendment. And that's because the government felt that the uh, creation of a parliamentary judicial committee blurred the distinction between the legislative and the judicial and also ran contrary to government policy. Uh, government policy being that it's for the competent courts to make the determination of genocide. The Lords has now agreed the bill um, after it returned from the Commons. Um, speaking in response, Lord Alton had said that the genocide debate on the bill may have ended, but that the issue would not end there. Uh, so we expect to hear more from Lord Alton on that. The bill is now waiting for royal assent. That's the final formal stage that makes the bill an act of parliament. Next up, we are speaking to Baroness Newlove about her journey to the House of Lords, standing up for victims of crime, and how she has helped change the domestic abuse bill. Helen Newlove, Baroness Newlove, joined the House of Lords in 2010. Uh, she's long been a campaigner for support of victims of crime and was also Victims Commissioner for England and Wales for seven years. We spoke to Baroness Newlove about her journey to the House of Lords, her first impressions, and how she and others have worked to change the domestic abuse bill. <laughs> Hello, I'm Helen, Baroness Newlove. I'm a Conservative peer, a member of the House of Lords and also a Deputy Speaker. Helen, welcome to the podcast. You joined the House of Lords as a campaigner on issues such as tackling binge drinking, stronger sentences for serious offences and improved support for victims of crime. Um, and your journey to the Lords is actually quite different to most. Could you tell us a bit about I it? I can, yes, not to make the listeners feel more, you know, saddened with all things going on, but it gives you the background, as you say. In 2007, my late husband, Gary Newlove, was attacked by a gang of youths and lost his life two days later. And in that, there was all the actions were witnessed by my three daughters who were, uh, Amy was 12, Danielle was 15, and Zoe was 18 at the time. And it was just a normal summer's evening in a normal neighbourhood. Uh, and um, Gary had left our home to see what was going on outside with noises. Um, we'd had 
huge antisocial behaviour issues. We heard somebody kicking my car and sadly Gary lost his life for asking one simple question, who damaged my car? So for me and my family, it was a huge shock, not just losing Gary and having to turn his life support machine and my daughters having to be witnesses in a, a 10-week court trial. But it's it's kind of, you're in one of them situations where it's not an Xbox game, it's actually real life and it's doesn't feel real if you understand what I mean it's and everybody's coming in and out of your house and police officers and my daughters went for lots of interviews because obviously they were the main witnesses and so yes for me that journey was completely different than a lot of colleagues in the house of lords but uh, you know for me it is important that people understand why I'm there and how I speak up and at the time in 2007 there was a lot of alcohol issues you know around the country to be perfectly honest so it has been a different journey and I'm still campaigning as we speak today. So in 2012 you took up the role of uh, victims commissioner could you tell us a little bit more about that and what sort of uh, what sort of work that involved? Yes uh, 2012 I was very proud to to set up the victims commissioner for England and Wales as there'd been a gap uh, of no no office being run for that position. It was a an exciting but an interesting learning curve of a setting up an office that would deal with victims of crime uh, across England and Wales also setting up a team of the right people that I needed so I had lots from different agencies and also then having um, as victims commissioner set up meetings with ministers so I would set up I would speak to the secretary of state for justice I would also then have talks and very good meetings with the Lord Chief Justice of England which was interesting because that's at the Royal Courts of of Justice where you hear appeals and everything and I'd been there personally for several appeals so to go behind the scenes was quite spooky at first so to have that that you know that ability to have them conversations with the highest justice of the land was was daunting at first but very interesting and I think I think I went I had three justices to speak to in the end but also the fact that I would then most importantly for me was hearing victims voices and at the time of becoming victims commissioner there was also the creation of the police and crime commissioners so there was quite a lot of dynamics going on to try and manage because obviously the police and crime commissioners were the budget holders of victims you know money uh, and grants and everything and that funding went direct to them so it was very important to map out uh, to meet every police and crime commissioner and it took me two and a half years to meet every police and crime commissioner so any railway times or trains you want any guidance on I'm the woman to be because I can tell you what their service is like and everything so it was interesting to find across the country different uh, different victims of crime the most difficult one was speaking to children. It covered, you know, from sexual abuse, rape, domestic abuse, antisocial behaviour. Uh, and I was very honoured for them to come and take the time to speak to me because it's very daunting to speak about something so personal. But the most, you know, the most bit that I really enjoyed was them bringing the work into the House of Lords as Victims Commissioner, asking the ministers questions and also taking part in debates to influence debates that, you know, fully understand the journey of a victim. Uh, so for seven years I, I did that. I'm very proud of the reviews that I did, the reports I did. So I did many reports on social behaviour, what works for victims. Uh, we also did about criminal injuries compensation because that's a huge issue for victims. So we managed to change a lot of things on that. 
when I finished, I, I had the opportunity, I was invited to the United Nations by their victims advocate, Jane Connor, uh, who I'd met, she'd come to meet me while she was in the UK. I was to attend a workshop uh, about victims. And that was a learning curve for me, being a victims commissioner for England and Wales, but seeing the nature of victims globally was horrendous even to another layer, if you could understand that. The Victims Commissioner I'm so proud of because we have gained a lot of momentum on what the victim's journey is, but I'm so proud of you know finishing and learning more at the end of it, if you get my meaning from what we still got to do, not just where we live, but globally as well. What were your expectations of the House of Lords before you joined? Was the reality very different from what you imagined it to be? Now that's a question. <laughs> the reality of the House of Lords, I studied law, so of course in the law books you just see the red benches and I do a lot of going to schools before pre-Covid and it, you know I tell them you know in the law books it looks quite boring but so to, to see them red benches it's a bit surreal in a sense it's like oh no this isn't my world and there's an induction process before you actually become ennobled in the house of lords and it, it felt very much like you know i didn't belong here everybody spoke with plums in the mouth and i say that respectfully i don't i don't say it to be horrible and because the people i've met are so so respectful and i love it but at the time it's you know i was a legal pa and you know, I came into this from losing my husband. So I'm very working class. So it was a bit daunting. Um, I kept expecting some security officers to say, you know, excuse me, you're in the wrong place. Uh, and I did feel a bit like Hilda Rogdon, which a lot of people won't know, but it's an old actor in Coronation Street where she used to have curlers in her hair and was a cleaner. So, you know, that was that kind of thing. So it was very daunting. But there were some fantastic staff who helped you through it. And I think that kind of relaxed you, even though the folder, we used to get folders then, it's 11 years ago now. Um, and the folder was like, oh, my God, I've got homework to do because there's so many do's and don'ts and procedures. So whilst it was daunting, I found it very interesting and I've made some really good friends. And you spoke about campaigning outside of Parliament. Obviously, you're a campaigner within Parliament now. How how are, how are the two different? You know, is your campaign style different in the House of Lords than it is outside of the House? Campaigning is a, is a, is a really different word for different people in a sense that for what I was doing, I, I was just trying to inspire young people not to go into drink and drugs and 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 help them uh, in Warrington and and look at the issues of alcohol and of course going through the you know the courts where I was you know I used to work in the courts so I used to take evidence down so when you're on the other side so to speak it's a completely different look and so I was really passionate about that but I didn't have any aims to do anything but, you know, I was very fortunate to work with David Cameron, who was in opposition at the time, and he, he kind of gave me that ability to voice it. And so I think, you know, like you said, that's the reason he brought me into the House of Lords was to use that voice to, you know, and to make it accessible for everybody to say it's not just a certain class. It's good to have a different divide. And, um, you know, I'm a gobby northerner, so I suppose it's really good to, to have me in there in a sense. But. I don't think it's I think it's different now that I am in the House of Lords because of the journey I've had. I've been given opportunities to have government roles. And my last role was the former Victims Commissioner Premier Wales for seven years. And, you know, so I've learned so much as well from some great 
you know, ministers of past and also learn to, you know, how civil servants work and how government departments work. And um, in fact, when I went for my victims commissioner role interview, I, you know, I used to say to my daughters, you're as good as anybody else, you know, you get in there. Uh, and um, when I went for that, I have to say, I went to the pub across the road and had the biggest glass of wine ever because I was like, oh, my God, is this how they do it? But I, I'm so passionate about the House of Laws, not just because I'm in it, but because of what people can learn through it and the work we do do it. So the campaigning is different. I think it's because, you know, I've learned so much as well on being in the House of Laws than I would have outside, to be perfectly honest. And you've played a very active role in the domestic abuse bill recently, which is currently passing through the Lords. And there have been a few areas where the Lords has convinced the government to reconsider, including on non-fatal strangulation and preventing victims being charged to provide proof of injuries. In the chamber, I see that you recently commented that it was the first bill you'd been completely involved in and had been blown away by the experience, knowledge and huge support you got from other members. So how did you go about as sort of a novice, I guess, of getting those changes you wanted made to the bill? And is there any particular process for crafting amendments and getting people to support you on those? Well, yes, it's, it's the most nervous thing I've ever actually done because you, everybody says you need to follow, you know, my colleagues need to follow a bill. And we do follow the bills to a certain degree, but I think it's better when it's your kind of what you're interested in because you can bring that, you know, that experience, that passion. And so I was delighted to be asked to take the non-fatal strangulation amendment through into the Lords with victims groups who contacted me because it, after reading their briefing, I was just amazed. And as a mother of, you know, three daughters, you just think this can't be happening. And the criminal justice system, you know, it's a system of its own, the way it makes and the way legislation, it, sometimes they don't act. So I was passionate to ensure that people fully understood what non-fatal strangulation was about. Uh, and the bill, you know, bills are quite huge to be impactive on. And the domestic abuse bill, uh, if anybody's been, you know, been watching it, it's been in the House of Commons and it's got, we've had, you know, general election. It's been round a while. It never seems to get to the end of it. So I'm really grateful and fingers crossed we do get it to royal assent. But it has been, you know, I've been so inspired by people from organisations, from individuals, from victims who have contacted me, who have gone through this non-fatal strangulation. And also, you know, from across all sides of the house who have really supported me that I just can't believe, you know, I'm being wowed by it because, you know, I don't see myself as any different to these, these guys. And these are QCs, you know, so I'm thinking, well, if they say it's good, it must be good. So I've, I've, whilst it's a horrible subject and a tragic and it's just a horrible subject to talk about, I've had um, a really, really thorough, exciting time following because there is a, you know, amendments have to be in a set way. You have a formula. You have to put, I'm with this. Now we're doing this like hybrid house. So there's different ways. You've got to get your name down. So it's very mechanical in a way that you've got to do it. But again, it's down to the staff. Again, if we've got any questions, they come right back. We couldn't function in the House of Lords without the staff. And I don't think we praise them enough, especially in the pandemic, how we've managed to able to carry out the work that we do. So, Helen, I think you're the first member we've had on the podcast who's uh, experienced virtual and hybrid proceedings from sort of both sides, sitting on the wall sack as the deputy speaker, but then also participating. Um, could you share with us what that's been like in both of those roles? The way we've turned this around to have a virtual proceeding, hands down to the guys that we don't see, 
um, who have worked solid. And I think we need to bow down to them because it's not easy. I mean, you know, I just press the button and expect everything to work. And if it doesn't, I'm thinking, oh, my God, my world's over. I can't connect. They're dealing with God knows how many wires, buttons or whatever to try and connect around the country. Let's be honest, and in Scotland and everywhere. So bow down to them guys. But being um, being hybrid, I think there's there's a disappointment because now the House of Lords and the Commons are in, are in full hybrid, where if as a deputy speaker, I cannot take that role up because I have to be physically in the chamber. Um, so for me, that was, you know, with the pandemic, it's a no, no, because obviously I've got a very frail mother and she's my priority in my family. Saying that the hybrid does work well for what we want to try and carry on and do the business of the House of Lords that it's there to do. Again, as the domestic abuse bill and all the other legislation that government wants to pass, it is very, um, how it's worked out is very time consuming as well. So the difference is if you're there physically, you can pop up and ask another question if there's an, you know, in a debate or in a legislation. However, with the hybrid, it has to be where you know you have to put your name down the procedure will say you know two days before so it is very time consuming you've got to remember to do that and that sometimes you may not think you want to take part but then it's too late if you do so it kind of cuts you off at the wick on some things but the ability to be able to do you know even this podcast today uh, seeing you guys the ability that uh, a virtual platform gives you I think is more creative um, and saves people being exhausted of traveling as well. You know, uh, lockdown when it ends is going to be very interesting how we're, you know, I'm hoping that we can still do this because, a, it's, you know, it cuts down the cost of travel, everything. And I think sometimes we're more productive when we're not traveling with the stresses and strains of doing that. And you can still work late hours, like, you know, with the domestic abuse bill, I did 14 hour days with them. So it hasn't stipulated, doesn't cut us off, the meter doesn't run out. Uh, we're still carrying on. And that's thanks again to the guys in the back that we don't see, but that's also down to the House of Lords, you know, trying to work together, which we do. Uh, to make the best of a position that we're in. Uh, you spoke as well about um, support for victims and your own experience as Victims Commissioner for England and Wales. How do you feel the country's faring on support for victims? I think the arena now we are speaking about victims more. And as Victims Commissioner, it has been a tough gig, basically, at the very beginning, setting up an office, understanding. The one thing I, I'm not as a person is, I don't like the window dressing. I don't like the rhetoric. And I definitely don't like the smiles while they're with you and then drop it when they enter the door. So you can imagine my arena I've been in. But it's also fully understanding the impact of what victims go through. Now, whether that's antisocial behaviour, burglary, rape or whatever, people don't fully understand the impact because not one size fits all. So for me, the most important thing of understanding what they're doing is bringing that to the House of Lords. It's been really, really hard work to go on. And sadly, we have seen, you know, the, the murder of Sarah Everard. That's brought a lot of issues for women and violence against women to the forefront. So while we're discussing what victims go through, we are not there. And the only way we will resolve this is if there's legal rights for victims, because you kind of the poor relation in the criminal justice system. While you're very focal and you're the focus because obviously if there's no victims in a criminal justice system we'd all be out of a job so that's where I start from but we've got so much to do um, and it takes so long to do it but I do think uh, until we get a victim's law 
and a victim's advocate, which is not to what I mean by that is somebody who will be professional, paid, uh, will know the way around the criminal justice system to take the pressure off victims who have to ask constantly uh, and maybe share their story 25 times to agencies, which is re-traumatising every stage. So we're at a certain stage where we talk about them and Domestic Abuse Bill has shown how important that we must, the government must get this right. But we've still got gaps that we need to close. It's Women's History Month at the moment, and I think it's been, you know, quite a difficult month, actually, for for women in the UK. Uh, You mentioned just now, of course, the the tragic murder of Sarah Everard and, you know, the accompanying discussion, I suppose, of women's safety um, and violence against women. You know, I think this case has clearly had a real impact on a lot of women. Um, I just wondered what your thoughts were on that, really, and how we can continue having these discussions. First of all, I did feel that you know, the family, Sarah's family, it's too early to be doing these things because they're they're going through trauma. You know, there's still a lot of investigations going. And I say that because Gary's murder was a national worldwide case. And I know the continuous, you know, issues with the press and the media. And it's hurtful to, you know, to see if they watch the news, to see in Sarah's name. It's the things that we wouldn't understand unless, sadly, you've gone through what we've gone through. But also we've got to look at um, accommodating things which have been stripped down by previous governments. There's no telephone boxes around anymore. Everybody presumes we have a mobile phone. The signal's not always ex- you know, great where it is. Uh, public transport has been narrowed down. So there's lots of elements that we need to ensure that people feel safe, as well as the criminal justice system, fully understanding that where there is an issue, it, it has to be dealt with at the highest command. You joined an all-female panel of members a couple of weeks ago uh, to speak to some A-level students around the country uh, for International Women's Day. What advice would you give to any women and girls starting out campaigning for change? I think listen and learn and acknowledge, you know, older people who have been doing this in a sense, because I think it's not one not one straight line. And I thoroughly enjoyed the panel. I thought it was brilliant, actually. Um, I got to meet Baroness Hunt, who I never met before. And, you know, it was really interesting because we're all coming from the same spot. It was all about different generations like Baroness Harris, uh, Jamie was on there, Chakrabarti, Baroness Chakrabarti. It, it was about how we all looked at through a different window, but we all wanted to close the same window, if you get my meaning. And so talking to these young people in schools and the questions were unbelievable. I tell you what, I was like really impressed because what saddens me, a lot of people don't want to go into politics because of what they see. But I think for campaigning, it's what you're passionate about. But instead of lecturing people is to listen and to engage and try to come to you know, some joint work together is having them negotiations and trying your best to to get your message through. Uh, And I think it's far better to be dignified in that way than sadly, sometimes um, we dismiss people's voices and we end up getting nowhere. You've been a member of the Lords for just over 10 years now. I was wondering, do you have a sort of favourable moment or anything that you're sort of most proud of over your time in the Lords? The most memorable, I have to say, is and proud inside is the domestic abuse bill, actually creating a legacy to protect women and men from no fentanyl. It, it was such a good feeling inside. Not that I've, you know, look at me, it's a team behind the scene. Uh, we work so hard and, and everything. So I'm really proud of that. Something that I can, 
show to my grandchildren really you know that when I'm you know generations past is actually this is why I was put in the House of Lords and that's why I'm so passionate and I think you know to, it's a privilege to be in the House of Lords that's why I'm passionate about you know promoting the House of Lords for what it does but I think the most other funny memorable I have to say is um you know, entering the House of Lords as as on my own one day into the chamber. If I go back when you when you you're inducted into the House and ennobled, you're it says you take your seat, but you just have party uh, size of where you sit. And so I did that. So then a couple of weeks later, I went into the chamber on my own. I'm a big enough girl; I can do this. And sat down. It was only when I looked up that I realised that the Queen's seat was on the opposite side to when I took my seat. And then, of course, you look up and think there's cameras everywhere. And I just think my daughters would love this. Mum's done it all wrong. And I'm thinking there's only certain times you can move, you know, because obviously if you get up at the wrong time. So I've got this list. And all of a sudden I've got these little notes being passed down the, the, the benches and they're saying, Lady Newlove, while we'd love you to be on our seats and our benches and we'd love you to join, you're actually sat on the wrong bench. <laughs> and all these little notes and I'm thinking, oh my God, I am so mortified. And then the doorkeeper, who obviously they, they help us run the, the chamber, came over and said, Lady Newlove, you're on the wrong bench. And I said... I know I'm on the wrong bench, but cameras are looking and I can't get up. I don't know when he can stand up and I don't know what to do. So he said, I'll give you the nod. So he gave me the nod and I got out. And uh, I think they were all kind of laughing in, in a warm laugh. And then he said, oh, we're going to put this in the monthly newsletter. It'll be great. And I said, I've been mortified. So that was my Bridget Jones moment, really. And, um, I, you know, I thought I was a really big grown up woman and I sat on the wrong side. So but, it, it you know, it's uh, just part of who you are and what you do. And that was my Bridget Jones moment. And I'll never forget it. But so, yeah, so that, you know, for me, that's a funny moment. That's a real moment because it is a lot of serious work that we do. Uh, the hours that we do, but it's just about, you know, great friends, having good humour in such difficult circumstances and trying to do the best you can. But that, that for me, that was the funny bit. And the domestic abuse bill, I'll be very grateful. I'm very grateful for all the help and assistance and what's going to go in for legislation to protect victims and survivors. Brownness New Love, Helen, it's been a pleasure speaking to you and hearing all about the work that you do. Uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. And I look forward to listening with eagerness to show my kids, really, to say, look, I do work in the day. <laughs> and that's it for the March episode of the House of Lords podcast. Thank you to our guests, Lord Alton of Liverpool and Baroness Newlove. We'll be back soon to talk more about what's happening, including the state opening of Parliament. So until then, please don't forget to subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, if there's a topic you'd love to hear us talk about, you can tweet us at UK House of Lords. Thank you.